Welcome to Long Story Short. My name is Shanta Pukler. I'm president at Man Group, and I'll be hosting a podcast series for investment professionals. Every year, we're asked by our clients and investors globally all kinds of questions from data science to monetary policy, the effect of inflation, how to trade or better risk manage portfolios. It's the goal of this podcast to have wide ranging and deep conversations on some of the most difficult topics that we face today. Welcome back to Long Story Short. I want to focus today on what I think is a very timely subject, and that is hedging portfolio and hedging risk in beta portfolios more broadly. Given the volatility and drama in equity and credit markets over the last several months, I really wanted to drill down into this topic. And joining me today, I have Peter Van Doyward, who's a managing director at Man Solutions and an expert on this topic to talk to us about hedging more broadly. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Yeah, happy to be here. It's great to have you here. So you speak with a wide range of global asset owners. What's their sentiment right now and how is it differing from yours? So it's funny, there's been a big evolution over the last year and a half, right? The inflation story started as maybe there's some inflation, then it became transitory, then it became not transitory. And now we're in the, oh my goodness, <laughs> the Fed is hiking rates, inflation is bad, and my portfolio is doing terribly, right? So whatever, whatever version of 60-40 people own, they're suffering. And I, I don't think people have a clear view what to do, right? So we're in a little bit of I hope this all kind of works out phase. And I know that people want to diversify, and, and we'll talk about that later, and, and it's hard, right? And so the sentiment is down and, and, and not great. In a sense, so my sentiment doesn't really matter because I'm basically a perma bear. You know, my job is to help people with hedging and risk mitigation. So you don't want to have the most bullish, optimistic guy in the room and tell you, no, no, it'll be fine. You don't need to do anything about this. So for me, it's, you know, minus 20% can be minus 50%, minus 50 can be minus 80. And, you know, all the charts in history tell you it could be worse than you think. And just because it worked for 20 years doesn't mean it'll work for 40. So you don't know what's coming. You need to be prepared for it. It's tougher to prepare for a house, you know, a, a fire when your house is already on fire and we're kind of there right now. But there are some practical smart things I think people can do. And, and that's what they're sort of talking to us about. I've heard you use this term outsourcing risk management before. What do you actually mean by outsourcing risk management in the context of tail hedging? Yeah, so I say it a lot because when you buy a put option, you're basically ensuring that your portfolio won't lose money beyond a certain level. So you buy 5% out of the money put and the market falls, you're protected by that put option and you pay a certain premium for that. And what you've done basically is you've transferred your risk to some third party, a market maker, a market maker, an investment bank, something like that. And so now they're basically in charge of managing the risk of your portfolio, not directly because you've protected yourself. The thing about outsourcing is it has a cost, right? We're used to outsourcing, meaning it becomes cheaper. I should do it, right? I should give people this to do for me because they're going to be better at it. And that's not the case here, right? You're paying a very high premium for that and you need to make some decisions. Is it worth outsourcing my risk management for this very high cost? It was expensive coming into the year, right? You know, it was expensive coming out of COVID. And I think in part it became expensive because, you know, bond equity correlation was problematic and people started to worry about bonds. Will bonds be defensive? And so there were a few moves you could make. You could de-risk, which people often don't do in a market rally. You could diversify, which is a little tough to do with an IC that hasn't seen certain products, or you could start thinking about hedging and buying options. And we had a huge retail inflow that everyone knows about in terms of call buying. So vol was high to begin with. And since then, it's been nothing but volatile, right? The whole year has been ups and downs, the Ukrainian war, 
you know, bond equity correlation. So it's definitely expensive and harder to hedge. A one-year put might cost you 6% for a 10% out of the money put. Before COVID, that will cost you 2.5%. So there's a huge increase in cost. And if you think about that put, to break even on a 10% out of the money put that you paid 6% for means down 16% from here. We're already down a lot year to date. That could put you in a 30, 40% kind of down range to you know break even on a put. That doesn't feel great if you're doing that trade. And so what about non-equity asset owners and the cost of protection? Is the cost high in bonds and other parts of the market as well? It's gotten high everywhere else, sort of sequentially. You know, fixed income went first last year in September. And you remember people were saying, I can't believe that equity markets aren't more volatile when fixed income's gotten this volatile. Right. It took a little while to translate and it finally showed up. And then the FX markets got a little unglued, right? There have been some unusual moves. We're used to yen strong in a bad market and it's moved, you know, 15% pretty quickly. So FX markets have gotten more expensive. You can imagine oil markets are expensive to trade volatility. So everything is expensive. And you're now at a point where I don't know which asset class is best if I have to hedge things. Imagine if you have to hedge all of the asset classes. You're you're really left with no cheap option. Even credit options have become expensive because credit has suffered under the dual problem of spread widening and rates rising. So it's, it's definitely a tough year for all asset classes. And using options isn't necessarily the best option right now. And if outsourcing at this point is sort of top ticking price wise and therefore prohibitive, what are the options for protection? So I, I think from a hedging perspective, maybe the better question is what can you do with a portfolio? You can make certain decisions right now, right? You can diversify the risk you have, i.e. 60-40 is difficult and correlations are high, so we should diversify. You could directly manage the risk you have. Or you can find a way to distribute the risk and distribute the risk. We've talked a little bit about hedging, but it may mean selling. But that's kind of the three-step way, I guess, to think about and, and, and where to go from here. But given all the correlation spiking we're seeing in the market, diversification seems challenging these days. If 60-40 is vulnerable, what do we do from here? Yeah, I think we're used to bonds working and everybody's talked about 60-40 being challenged. And so you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about bond equity correlation. Right. But you know, diversification is tough because it means going multi-asset into potentially going to commodities, might mean going into real estate, infrastructure, asset classes you're not familiar with. And so there's a lot of work that goes into it. It's very easy for me to sit here and say, you know, in inflationary times, you should buy commodities. It's very easy for Tom Dreisman to say the same thing. Okay. And then the IC member who says, but I remember in March 2020 that oil went to minus 40. And everyone looks around and thinks, yeah, maybe we shouldn't pay 110 for an asset that went to minus 40. And, and I think there's, there's a lot that goes into this diversification conversation. But one of the things I I find interesting is when, when we look at what's going wrong with 60-40, if you can't figure out what to do, it doesn't hurt to sell a little bit and put some in cash. And I think one of the biggest you know disservices we have in the investment industry, industry is to say cash is trash. Mm-hmm. You know, cash this year is flat, right? <laughs> flat feels pretty good compared to you know minus 15, minus 16, whatever asset class you're looking at. So flat, low vol, easy. And it gives you some optionality. So, you know, what? I think this Fed story is overdone or this story is overdone. So I might start reallocating to assets, right? So if you don't know what's happening and moving to cash to provide yourself free protection, right? <laughs> like, you know, that class is going to be safe. I don't think it's a crazy thing to do. But that sounds a little bit crazy in the face of the inflation that we're experiencing. How do you counter that? You are. And I'm not trying to sell you a cash only strategy. <laughs> but It's fair, right? Because 
some of the conversations you have, well, on a real return basis, you can't do this, right? So, you know, Fed funds still don't really give you any money. So I think that's a reasonable response. And certainly we don't want you holding cash for the next 50 years um, unless rates are really high. So, you know, for sure, that's difficult. On the other hand, it's a pretty challenging time. So there's a, there's a bit of an arrogance in our industry say you should always be invested because you should be invested always in things that go up. And, and making that list of things that go up all the time isn't all that easy, right? And managing the things when they don't go up all the time isn't all that easy. So I think people need to take the flexibility, use cash as a buffer zone, and make tactical decisions based on that. So if, if you don't understand the environment well enough, or you look at like, I think so many things can go wrong, valuations might be very high, we're still probably high on a historic basis valuation-wise, there's nothing wrong with putting some in cash and, and sitting it out. And, you know, you've still got plenty of risk on. If you go from 50, 60 to 55 equity, you're not missing that much to the upside. So given the challenges you talk about, how do we fix the 60-40 malady? So before I told you commodities are tough, yeah. <laughs> it turns out you still need them. You need something. And I, and I think we've been too dependent for a long time on those two asset classes. And rightly so. It's been relatively easy. It's, you know, there probably have been much better mixes. You know, you can make a lot of better versions of 60-40. It just happens to have worked really easily. It's been a decent benchmark. So I think, you know, it makes sense to be in commodities. It probably makes sense to go beyond that into infrastructure and real assets. That's not really our bag. So for, for me, I focus a bit more on, on getting exposure to commodities. And given it's pretty hard to risk manage it, Perhaps using something like trend makes a lot of sense, right? Where trend is a decent answer because it's it'll get long things that are going up like commodities in, in this type of environment. And when it starts to reverse, it'll get out of the way. Maybe it overtrades, maybe it buys and sells it a little too often. Um, but I think it gives you an access to that asset class. Peter, I was waiting for you to play the trend card. Tell me more about how it's really different or diversifying from owning underlying assets permanently. You know, I think what's great about trend is it, it, it sort of manufactures its own convexity, if you will. So it creates exposure to assets. But what it does, it gives you exposure to assets that I wouldn't even put in a 60-40 portfolio. Like, I don't know how you'd create a basket of FX and currency crosses for your portfolio. Like 60-40 plus I'll throw in some yen and some euro. And it doesn't really make any logical sense. But trend will get you exposure to those asset classes. So you're getting exposure to things that aren't really even investable in many ways for, for, for most asset managers. So you get commodities, we get currencies, and also it gets you involved in bonds in a way you wouldn't do. You wouldn't be the type of manager who shorts bonds in 60-40. It's one thing to say, I don't want as much duration. It's another thing to go to the IC right in the middle of a war and in Fed hiking rates and say, I don't think we need bonds, we should be short them. That's a pretty tough thing to do. So Trend has this neat tendency to correct the portfolio problems you have, right? It's not an amazing, complicated instrument. It's a bit of a blunt instrument, but it gets you out of some bonds. It gets you out of some equities. It gets you into commodities. It moves your portfolio around in a multi-asset way and in a way that creates convexity to these other asset classes. Let's take a detour for a minute. Help us understand what manufactured convexity is. It sounds like a great feature of trend, but, but just illuminate there. When we talk about options, people often say, well, options are convex. So when the market starts to move, you, you own a put option, the market starts to move, the put option starts getting a lot of delta or market exposure very quickly. And that's what convexity looks like. So you can imagine people have seen the hockey stick version of these sort of put option payoffs. 
Trend does that kind of in a replicating manner, but it more like a straddle. So as the market starts to move away from some baseline in some direction, one or two standard deviations, it starts to build exposure. So just like a straddle might build exposure because you own it, the call option is going up in value. Trend is slowly buying that exposure. But instead of buying a straddle or buying a put or buying you know, options from the market at a high price, Trend is just doing it dynamically and getting you that exposure you know, for lack of a better word, for free, right? And your your cost of that, of course, is what if it moves really fast? Then you might have missed some of that first move that a straddle would get. But trend is doing it in a lot of different asset classes. So I don't mind if I miss one of them, if I've got some of the other ones working, right? And that's the really key thing for trend as a diversifier. I think people sometimes think trend makes a lot in equities in a crash. It actually makes a lot more in all the other asset classes in an equity crash. And so maybe 80, 85% of returns come from non-equities during market dislocations. And on the upside, it makes a, bit in, a fair bit in all these other asset classes as well. So shifting gears a little bit, what about private equity in the context of protection and downside risk? It's funny because I, I often hear them, well, we're diversifying into other assets like private credit and private equity. And it's pretty tough when you're, again, a perma bear <laughs> to, to look at private equity as anything other than equity with maybe even more leverage yeah. and private credit as maybe credit in even riskier capital structures than, than the publicly available high yield and investment grade markets. So I don't think of them as diversification. I understand it's nice that things don't mark to market. So feels pretty good. I think this year might feel a little different because, you know, for a lot of the June 30 year end folks that, you know, it worked pretty well in the global financial crisis. June 30 was the right time and COVID June 30 was the right time. This year, this year is going to be tough because it was the high water mark last year. And I think, you know, this year, June 30 is going to feel, you know, there'll be some bad marks in venture capital. And so that diversification is, I'll generously say challenging, but it may be an illusion. You know, thinking on this, it strikes me that just straight out selling might be the best source of protection. How does that fit into your thinking? There's been a lot of questions about why is vol not flying higher and you know why are puts seemingly a little cheaper compared to calls recently and people seem to be hedging less. And I think, you know, the cost of hedging is high. And the natural result is, okay, if I'm not that great at diversifying, maybe I should hedge some of this stuff. It's expensive. So maybe I should be selling. And it, when these kind of moves happen where we see, again, puts not exploding in value, then the market has entered what I might call a liquidation mode. So you're just eliminating your long risk and selling it. And maybe it's you know, certain communities, maybe certain long short funds that have a lot of beta exposure have gotten hurt this year. And, and they're probably a big part of that liquidation mode. I guess the obvious question here is what other tools are available beyond tactical diversification or straight out selling? Yeah, I think that's the, the the right question, right? You've started with diversification. The thing is, we know diversification can fail, right? Commodities have done well, and there's this lingering doubt, like what happens if the war situation resolves itself? Will there be a shock lower in commodities? And what will that do to the bond market? Does it necessarily rally the bond market? Probably not. It might hurt bonds. And what does that do to equity? So there's a, a lot of kind of moving parts, yeah. right? The good outcome might not be a good outcome. This yeah. year has been definitely some of that, right? And I think once you move beyond diversification, there are a few things we like to look at. One is volatility scaling. It's something we use in a lot of our, our uh, portfolios at the firm. And what volatility scaling does is our, our baseline thesis is that volatility clusters. So if you look through history, when volatility picks up in a market, it tends to persist for a while and it tends to be a pretty bad time to own assets. So reacting to that makes some sense. 
And so there are some versions of that you hear in the vol markets, like when the front VIX contract goes above the back VIX contract, that's a really bad sign, reduced risk. This is kind of a similar concept, right? It's using a, a volatility signal to reduce risk and kind of keep your portfolio in equilibrium. I mean, simplistically, it's like using volatility as a sell signal. Yeah. De-risking being essentially a version of selling. Yeah. And I think that signal, it's both proven academically and, and in kind of in live practice for us. So using yeah. volatility as a, a mechanism. So what that means is volatility picks up a bit, you reduce some risk. Now, do you want to do it at the whole portfolio level, part of the portfolio level? What it is, is it's a systematic signal to, to have you reduce risk as opposed to a fundamental one, as opposed to, I really don't know what's going on. So let's get rid of something, right? So now you have a reason to do it. And if you implement it and you stay, you know, you don't want to be mechanical about things, but if you stay true to doing it, it's like tail hedging. If you do it, you need to consistently do it. You can't just say, well, I didn't like today's headline right. or yeah, it feels like it's going to be volatile. So having this kind of process in place is one way of managing risk, not the only one. Another thing you might look at is something like correlation overlay, because I just told you to diversify and then all your assets went down. That doesn't feel great. And you have to say, thanks, Peter, for getting me into commodities. <laughs> <laughs> and so paying attention to cross-asset correlation matters. Where we really think it matters is in bonds and equities, right? So the correlation universe has changed and how you manage risk will, as a result, have to have changed. So if you're relying on that correlation to be at the risk level you're at, say you're overweight equities, but you have extra bonds and you have some leverage and you think, wow, I have leverage, I'm overweight. These all feel like bad things because correlations aren't working. It's a pretty good time to use that correlation signal to get out of the way, especially, again, if you don't have any other information, we like risk-based tactical asset allocation. So those two are kind of the ones I would highlight as a way of managing your own risk rather than having to outsource your risk management to the options market. So I have this interesting way of thinking about risk decomposition that maybe is relevant here. The idea being that on the diagonal of the covariance matrix, you have vol, and on the off-diagonal, you have sort of correlation effects. And I'm curious in the context of the market environment over the last couple months, which of those you think is, is dominated? Is it a mixed bag? I think it's definitely a mixed bag, actually. It's funny because, you know, down 10, 12, 15% in equities, you don't panic if bonds are up 5, 7%. Right. When both are happening, it just makes everything uncomfortable. We've had a few episodes, you know, December, you know, 2018 was one of those. Everything fell apart. And then the Fed stepped in and everything's great. And, and you know, we've jokingly said, wow, markets are down a lot. Bonds are down a lot. The Fed needs to do something. And then everyone looks around quietly in the room and is like, who's going to tell them? <laughs> right? Because the Fed is obviously in, in a much different situation. And I think that's the big problem. So we have a correlation problem. We have a volatility problem. And those things are coming from the fact that we're somewhat data dependent. We keep waiting for a CPI turn, which hasn't come. We are waiting for Fed hikes, but you, know, you just get 50, 50, 50. There's nothing exciting from 50, 50, 50. We're going to have the balance sheet run down slowly. All you can say is there might be a hard landing in 12 months. And in many ways, you know, people often say after the first Fed hike, the market rallies. And my response to this is, well, after I walked out the door this morning, the market tends to rally 12 months later, right? So it's not, it's not a signal as much as equities tend to rise. The path with which you go over those 12 months has been pretty messy in, in a lot of these Fed hike cycles, right? And so that's kind of where the risk management piece comes back. And to your point, you know, volatility is picking up in the individual asset classes, in many ways, because the correlation is picked up and you haven't had portfolio level safety. So then you start saying, well, what do I reduce? I reduce my riskiest assets. It used to be you just reduce equity. Now I'm reducing my equities and bonds, and it's creating a bit of a negative feedback loop. So I think you're right on. 
So as I understand it, you put tail hedging in the bucket of distributing risk. That's not totally intuitive. Can you explain that a little bit? You know, we mentioned you could sell and, and, and the next, the other version is, is tail hedging. So there is a clear problem with selling your portfolio in the sense that when everything goes up, you've missed, right? You've disadvantaged potentially your investors, you're underperforming some benchmark, some peer. So tail hedging gives you a unique advantage, right? That you can outsource your risk management as described before. You're just distributing all that downside risk to the broader options market, to the dealer community, whoever that might be. And you're keeping all the upside. Now, when we say that, it just sounds amazing, right? Like, give me that. <laughs> and then the small fine print that the tail hedge manager says, for a cost. <laughs> and, and as we said, that cost is particularly high if you're just doing a simple index put strategy. That cost is high in some of the other asset classes. So it sounds great on paper. Again, paying 6% for a one-year option means you need to also make 6% in your risky asset portfolio before you start really making money. So down a lot in the year, that might feel great. But if your return expectation is 5% per year and you're spending 6% on options, maybe you might be better in two-year notes making 25 3.5%, depending where bonds are at any given moment. The obvious follow-up to that is if hedging is so expensive, is there any way to bring options efficiently into a situation like this from a hedging perspective? None. <laughs> okay, there might be some. So there are things you can do. And so, yes, multi-assets expensive, but there, you know, credit does have some beta and it's a little bit cheaper than equity vol. So looking at other asset classes does help with credit, for example. FX used to be one of our favorite go-to as tail hedgers. You knew the yen would be strong in every crash. And you're looking at me saying the yen is not strong right now. Yes. I know you want to say it because you're just being polite. Um, so the yen is not strong. The yen is incredibly weak this year. And that's an obvious dynamic. It's, a, it's an economy that's a price taker. You know, so inflation hurts them. And at the same time, they're doing nothing with rates. So you know, it's not surprising. It's easy to explain. But if you're in your toolkit, you, know, you open up your tail hedge toolkit, you're like, okay, the yen thing's not working. You know, but some of the other FX crosses are working Aussie dollar. But it Maybe it will, maybe it won't, because is it correlated to inflation or not? And it was kind of half the time it works, half it doesn't. So as you expand your toolkit, you need to be aware that taking a little bit of basis risk outside of equities, maybe those tail hedges don't work as well. The other things you can do are a bit more kind of plain vanilla, which is, you know, choose your strikes and duration a little bit better. So you know, simple thing you can do. But the other thing is to start considering selling away some of the upside. You know, if options are expensive, well, then shouldn't you be selling them is the obvious choice. And most of the time, the answer right now is no, don't sell them because the world seems crazy. There's a lot of stuff going on and you don't want to just randomly introduce short vol to your portfolio. But selling an upside call, let's say 10% out of the money and a high vol, it's kind of easy to sit around the room and say to each other, up 10% from here, I'm pretty happy that we got back there. So why don't we give some of that away? If we lose some, you know, some of the equity gets called away, that's okay because it allows me to fund buying the downside put and getting all of the downside distribution covered, right? And so it's kind of easy to make some of these arguments, right? If rates are really going a lot higher, then maybe the multiple is supposed to be lower. Maybe it's hard to see the S&P being up on the year at some point. So you can pick some kind of fundamental or strategic targets and say, I'll sell some calls there and fund some of the downside. There's nothing complex about this. You don't have to go out and hire an asset manager. You simply just need to say, you know what? I'm happy to make my downside headache go away by giving away a little bit of the upside. Yeah. So maybe in closing, to wrap this up, 
you've given a lot of different prescriptions for how to approach portfolio protection, if you will, or hedging. Um, can you rank these and how do you think about uh, their utility as we move forward? Yeah, and I haven't even thrown a couple other things like quality and inflation strategies. There's just a lot to do. And in a way, one of the things I wish people would do is spend as much time on their kind of risk mitigation programs as they do on their long asset programs, right? You have individual managers by asset class, you have investment committees, all this conversation, hundreds of hours of due diligence on a, on a few managers to see how you allocate, and then oh, maybe we should buy some puts. And that, that's not really a process at all, right? So first, I'd like everyone to have a process. But the other thing is, not everything works all the time. I've said trend is great for inflation. It is. It's great in deflationary times. We've got lots of data, but it's not. It's convex, but it doesn't create convexity in a day. It takes a little while for trend to position or using vol scaling. It works great over time. We see lots of examples, but if there's a surprising gap, that doesn't work great. But tail hedging is expensive, but it covers the gap. And as you kind of put all these objections together, you realize the right way to go about it is probably blending a lot of this. And so, you know, we gave a talk recently doing exactly that, saying, look, systematic strategies do reasonably well in crises. They do pretty well in inflationary crises as well. It takes them a while to get in the right risk profile, but they have alpha in them and they have alpha between crises. Tail hedging just loses money. Everybody knows, knows it loses money between crises because markets are not in crisis. So if a systematic strategy can make some money in between those times, can I borrow some of that alpha from the systematic strategies to fund the tail hedge program? Your objection is going to be, well, why don't I just not do the tail hedge program? And the answer is because as the guy running the risk mitigation program, I have to answer to someone. So when the market's down X percent one day and I say, well, what happened was that the, the systematic stuff didn't do what I expected. It wasn't the right volatility. People joke. You know when you say what happened was the conversation is over. It doesn't matter who you say it to, your spouse, your friend, like it's a bad conversation. So adding a bit of tail hedging just to give that kind of pure reaction time to the market, I think is worthwhile. It allows your risk mitigation program to survive. And again, if there's some alpha in the program, your benchmark here is basically to do as well as bonds in, in any given market, except maybe not even as well now, right? If you can just not lose money like the 60-40 the plan is, that's a really good diversifier. And so when I look at a composite of all these strategies that we have, they have positive return, negative correlation, negative beta, positive sharp. You're supposed to want an infinite amount of that stuff. So having some allocation to it makes sense. And the more you can get exposed to, I think, and the more you can build it into the culture of the management business you're in so that risk mitigation is a core part of everything you do, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense and allows you to say, okay, what happened was this. We knew that happened. That's why we're in tail hedging. Or we knew that happened and we knew it would bleed. That's why we're in trend. Or we knew this. You know, and you have this kind of positive dialogue as opposed to this accusatory dialogue of never works, like I told well, you. To plan your hedging, right? Yeah. And so now I'm going to sell my hedges. I'm going to sell the stuff I own and just get rid of all of it. <laughs> and that's probably not a great reaction either. Got it. Peter, great conversation. Such a rich topic. There's so much more we could talk about, but let's finish there. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Chant. Thank you for joining us today. And from long story short, this is Shanta Pukler from Man Group. We look forward to you joining us again soon. Mm -hmm.